to episode number one of Dharmage, a scrappy little misfit of a podcast that's as new to me as it is to you. This week I'm happy to present a chat I had with Julie Price. Julie's one of the contributors I was fortunate to meet when compiling the anthology of Canadian Buddhist women. After reading her story, I wanted to hear more about her, and as we'd started to exchange emails, I discovered that she's a part of an amazing volunteer organization. Julie's a great example of those people who are walking the path, giving back, and doing some great work in the world. Someone who has been able to integrate spirituality in her day-to-day, and who's making a difference. So here's the interview with Julie Price for your enjoyment. Today I have with me Julie Price, who I've come to know from being one of the contributors to the book I'd recently edited, titled Lotus Petals and the Snow, an anthology of Canadian Buddhist women. Welcome, Julie. Hello, Tanya. Hi there. So great to have you here on the first official episode of Dharmage, a new podcast. You're very brave for joining me. Thank you. It's very exciting for me. Excellent. So uh, the first question I have for you really is, how did you come to discover Buddhism in your life? Um, I would say that I started dibble-dabbling in Buddhism probably as a teenager, and I had taken out from the library a weighty tome of some Buddhist, Chinese Buddhist treatise, which was way too long, very overwhelming, and uh, I didn't get too far (laughs) with that one. Um, Still had a big question mark. And then throughout my life, I just, as many people do, um, just experimented with different uh, readings and meditations. I ascribed to the, I would say, the buffet style of um, modern spirituality. Uh, which I think is becoming quite common. Um, I read many different things, and I tried TM and mindfulness meditation and uh, Vipassana, um, guided meditations, and also experimented with um, Hinduism and the whole gamut. And I always liked the idea of Buddhism, and I liked what I loved. The, the inspiration actually was feeling or knowing or having heard that um, everybody has a seed of enlightenment within them, or you're already enlightened, you just don't remember it. And that was tremendously relieving <laughs> to think that with all my faults and, and foibles that um, I indeed have that inside me. And so that really started me exploring a little more deeply. It wasn't until probably, well, actually 10 years ago, because July 1st, 2006, was when I started meditating and having a practice. Before it was, if I sat for five minutes, it was a major accomplishment. So very busy mind and uh, just wasn't there. But I feel like these are all, um, uh, it's a blossoming. It's, you know, you're, you're trying out, we're all stumbling around trying to figure it out. And I had read, I picked up a copy of the Upanishads uh, through Nilgiri Press. And the the foreword, it was translated by Eknath Iswaran, and the foreword was by him, and it talked about meditation. And I thought, oh, this guy is so simple and so such a wonderful teacher. So I looked him up. And I found somebody who was meditating or had a a group in my city in Winnipeg at the time and started going to meditation at their house every couple of weeks. And that 
the first time I tried that style, I just, I meditated for 30 minutes and I couldn't believe how quickly the time flew by. (laughs) So yeah, I thought, okay, this is something I need to stick with. You know, I feel like if you throw enough things at the wall, something is going to stick eventually. And that's the one that stuck. And what he practices is um, a passage meditation, which originally came from a Christian mystic um, tradition. And so I, he's from uh, Blue Mountain Center of Meditation in California. Uh, he's passed away now, but I started reading all his books. I started practicing every day and um, had other explorations since then. But the, he, he really opened up. It wasn't particularly Buddhism because I feel that at a certain level, they're all doing the same thing. We're all going looking for the same thing and going to the same place. Um, but the Buddhist, the Buddhist lifestyle and the nonviolence and the compassion that really spoke to me. So that's that's more or less where my my um, practice continued. I love that story, that journey that you've uh, that you've taken because it's. Uh, you know, you hear some stories of people that they just instantly fall in love with the first tradition they meet and they're in it and they're lifers. And then there's others, you know, like you and myself too, where it, you know, you're kind of on a winding path and, you know, like you, like you said, sampling from the buffet. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to hear the stories of uh, what, uh, what has brought people to Buddhism and, and also accenting with other traditions too. Well, I started at that time when I started meditating in that style I also um, discovered uh, Dr. David Hawkins from uh, USA, and I started reading Ram- Sri Ramakrishna and Ramana Maharshi, and it just sort of it all it all had a different meandering, but it all kind of it all said the same thing to me. So um, I've sort of mixed all those in together. Um, a few years ago, I certified as a Tibetan acupressure practitioner. And when I did the course and I did the class, our textbook was um, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. And so just learning about the Tibetan um, side of it was very interesting because that was a whole other um, a whole other place in Buddhism. <laughs> They're so very different. And uh, it's it's quite amazing. It's an amazing tradition. Indeed. It's interesting that you mentioned that book in particular because, and earlier when you speak to the book that you first encountered, because the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying was the first book that I picked up as a 19-year-old exploring Buddhism, and it blew my mind. I was like, I don't understand anything, and this is scary. <laughs> <laughs> and still upon reading it, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing. And these, these books... Uh, I think for my whole life, I've had these kind of spiritual books stacked up at the side of my, you know, on my bedside table. And I would dip, dab into, um, read little bits and pieces, Dhammapada, um, you know. And then also with my travel, I've done a lot of travel in Asia and uh, just seeing the different um, styles of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. And, you know, it, it's very fascinating and how it all winds together. Um one time, I, when I was in Winnipeg, I, I occasionally went to a Hindu temple, and uh, um, I'd gone every Sunday for 
some, I guess the whole summer. And at some point, this lady, I was in the cloakroom putting on my jacket and this uh, Indian lady came up to me and she said, um, excuse me, what religion are you? <laughs> she, she couldn't figure out why I was in the Hindu temple. And I said, I don't know. I, I kind of like them all. And she said, oh, you're Hindu then. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think from then I just kind of thought, well, it's okay. You know, you can just try out different things and see what works and whatever works, that's, you know, that's what works and keep on it. So I continue to read from all different traditions. And when I read Lotus Petals in the Snow, that's what inspired me was all these different women from different traditions, all um, all walking the same towards the same goal and practicing the same thing, um, compassion for others and self and it doesn't matter whether you're this flavor or that flavor. Yeah, that's so true. I find that that's, it's almost like we get so caught up in the labels of what kind of Buddhist are you? And we're showing our membership cards and at the door and all of our credentials. When at the day, I think some of the most Buddhist people are non-Buddhist out there walking around. Yeah. And, and I think too, because uh, I'm not, you know, I've read a lot of books and I've I've actually stopped reading as many. Now I just like to practice. And whatever I do, I try to practice what, I, what I've what i come to know as true. And, um, I, yeah, so I've, I'm very unknowledgeable about Buddhism per se. But uh, I like to think that I, I try every day, strive every day to connect um, with the, the higher self and use that as a baseline and go out and, and uh, just... Um, have it emanate in whatever way. I work as a nurse at the hospital oh, uh, great. here in Vancouver Island, and um, it gives you endless opportunities <laughs> working <laughs> with people that closely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you uh, affiliated in any way with the center in in your location, or do you do you go regularly to a a center to practice, or are you pretty much an at home practitioner? I'm an at home practitioner. Um, I, I remember I did go to a Dharma center in Vancouver for a short while uh, and struggled through an hour meditation <laughs> <laughs> once a week. That was well before I was practicing at home on my own. Um, and I'm quite rural here. There is a, there's a Tibetan uh, center in our area. Um, but no, I just uh, I practice at home and uh, occasionally I teach uh, very basic meditation classes to uh, people that I work with. Um, staff at the hospital, which is quite amazing. Um, when you when you work in such a high stress place, and then people start meditating, it changes it changes the dynamic of the workplace in a very positive way. So uh, I I do that once in a while, but no, I don't I don't attend anything. I actually I would like to once in a while, um, but you know life gets in the way and. I'd love to go on a retreat, but I haven't done that, no. Yeah. I think it's common to Canadians in some ways that where many of us are so remote, it's uh, even having a, a sangha or a group to practice with or to be able to go to retreat or having a practice center. <laughs> For some of us, the reality is we're so spaced out from each other that it's uh, quite far. And actually, well, I've come to think of it, there's um, the uh, Blue Mountain Center. Um, well, my husband and I, we meditate together, and he was the one who taught me uh, way back. And um, 
he meets with people. He used to go down to California on retreat to the Blue Mountain Center. And uh, he still meets with those people on Vancouver Island. We meet every once a year on um, the death date of, uh, of Ishwarn and um, meditate together and speak about him and talk about his teachings. But, uh, yeah, that's a sangha, but it's, it's sort of um, dispersed. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I think for a lot of us Canadians, we too kind of get what, what we can find where we can find it too. So it's, a, it's very precious when we do have teachers or we do find, uh, find people amongst us. That's, uh, that's very true. Um, the experience that you speak to about uh, being a nurse and teaching others, um, the meditation that you teach, is that uh, kind of a, a secular kind of uh, non-Buddhist, non-Hindu, non-anything, let's just chill out together and uh, see how we can get through the day a little better kind of meditation? <laughs> um, I do secular secularize it, yes. Uh, but I think um, it's a passage meditation. So what we do is uh, um, we go to... A, passage, we memorize a passage, often we start with this prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, because it's fairly short and simple, we memorize it, and we will memorize any um, uh, any passage from um, higher, uh, higher consciousness, uh, so it could be from, it could be Buddhist, it could be from the Upanishads, um, it could be Rumi, and uh, um, so you you medit or you we memorize a passage, and then you very slowly, very slowly recite it in your mind. Um, and when it's done, you recite recite it again and re- again until whatever time. If you set thirty minutes, then you do that for thirty minutes. Um, and what it does is it quiet quiets everything. But it also, it drives those words deep into your consciousness. Um, So at times of stress or, you know, when your buttons are getting pushed, (laughs) Mm. all of a sudden one of these little passages will float up into your mind and you'll go, ah, you'll remember (laughs) the the compassion for the other person or um, understanding that they're just going through a bad time or then you, or you ask yourself, why is my button being pushed here? It's my button. It's not theirs. Um, and you can, if you memorize, I've only memorized four passages, but uh, you can go one to the other. Anyway, this this has a way of quietening the mind. And uh, eventually, over years, uh, I found that it um, you go below the passage, you go underneath it, and then it gets very quiet. So the passage is like a, it's like a path getting into the, the deeper, quiet mind. Um, but when I found that when I started doing this type of meditation, I it was very life-changing. Immediately, um, I started being more aware of things. And, you know, sometimes those little snippets of the passage would come up in my mind and in, uh, you know, times when I needed it. And um, yeah, I stopped being able to multitask <laughs> I used to have about five layers of things going on in my mind, and then it went down to two, and slowly. But I just found that the awareness of things around me and people and the dynamics and the uh, basically the idea that that everyone's doing the best they can at this moment, whatever it looks like, that's it. Um, 
it may not look what you think it should look like, but they are doing the best they can at that moment for what they have available. Uh, and, and that's what kind of, that's what came up and I was able to put out in my everyday life. And so that's what I tried to teach in, in my meditation. My meditation classes, we would start with five minutes and everyone who practiced for five minutes every day for one week, the next week would go up 10 minutes and the next 15 minutes. And so we'd get up to 30. And, and I found that was, um, it was really, it was not, not everybody, most people, they learned that and then they, they went on to something else. But sometimes people would even use that as a stepping stone, like I did, meandering, trying out sampling different things at the buffet. Um, people would maybe learn this technique and think it's not for them or maybe they don't have time or whatever. And then maybe a couple of years later, I'd hook up with somebody and they'd say, oh, you know, I started going to the Vipassana Center um, and that has really stuck. So, you know, I always felt like, you know, my job was done. <laughs> that happened. That's wonderful too. I think, I can't think of any better place for there to be mindfulness and, and meditation and, you know, recognizing the goodness in another person and recognizing you too are doing your very best then in the healthcare setting. Yes. It gave me a lot of compassion for myself. I stopped beating myself up and thinking, oh, I said the wrong thing. And it really changed my um, self-esteem. Uh, it it transformed the way I, you know, I sort of became someone who said, well, that's it's the best I can do at the moment. <laughs> and being unabashed, um, you know, saying that. And yeah, it's knowing that um, the person is just, you know, being who they are, and, and it gave compassion for that person of, of allowing space for them to be who they are. And also the other thing that helped um, in the hospital work was really listening and sort of getting, instead of making up my own story about the person, it really made my judgment fall away and uh, just started to really listen and sort of get it about what the person really needs at this moment uh, may not be what I think they need. That's wonderful. Um, so with the work that you, uh, you're a volunteer, you're, I, I really haven't uh, researched this properly, so I'll admit my own failing and I'll be very compassionate on myself right now. <laughs> but I do know from your bio in the book that you mentioned you're part of the Calium, Kalimpong Dental Project. Is yes. that correct? Yes, Kalimpong um, Project, yeah. Could you speak a little bit to um, to this organization, how you became involved, and what exactly you do? Because it is quite tied in with uh, with a bit of uh, being in the world, compassion, and everything that you've been speaking about when it comes to being a healthcare practitioner and a meditator. Yes, uh, uh, this was born um, a few years ago. Uh, I was at the hospital working. I work in the perioperative area, and I work with uh, occasionally with this um, dental surgeon and uh, Dr. Anna Wang and she had, I know that she had been on many volunteer projects and she came in we started talking about a uh, project and I said oh that's something I'd love to do and uh, she said okay I'll put you on the list <laughs> I'm going uh oh and we were standing there with another nurse who said oh yes I'd love to do that too so there we were with um, we were already a small team of three 
And she she's a very action-oriented person, so she said, oh, okay, we'll, um, maybe we'll talk about this later and we'll, we'll think about what we want to do. So uh, we got, all got together a couple months later and we gathered a couple more people. We decided we were going to do a dental project um, somewhere in the world. And uh, we were originally going to go to Peru and that fell through. So then all of a sudden we had a team without a project. Um, we all, we went away and did our homework and then we presented um, our little ideas for where we could go. And, you know, just some of the people were had traveled to different places and had contacts. And, um, and I had known somebody uh, who does um, work in India, in Northeast India, in Kalimpong, and she's um, a naturopath, and she does uh, acupuncture for HIV and AIDS, Laura Louie Hope Foundation. And she gave me all the contacts and information of, you know, yes, it, it's possible you could do a project here, and here's where you could stay, and you could talk to this person, that person. Anyway, I presented this at our meeting, and this was the one they voted on uh, to accept as our next project. So off we were to get that to happen. So in 2013, um, we had a small team, six people, and sort of flying by the seat of our pants and and got to Kalimpong and, um, you know, started to, we, were, we took over this little facility. It's like a little conference center out in the, the rice paddies in the forest. Um, we had to drive in about 25 minutes from our town of Kalimpong and then walk through the rice paddies for about 20 minutes. And there we were in this wonderful little area in the lower Himalaya, just beautiful there, just forested hills and um, just a, a lovely sort of microclimate. They grow, um, well, the place we stayed, they grow orchids. So we stayed at Orchid Farm. And we saw we were there for two weeks and we saw about 250 children and um, fix their teeth. And we identified one little boy who had had a sore mouth. And actually my friend, Laura, who had given us the contact said, you know, you might want to see this little kid because, you know, he's not, we've seen him a few times and I can't do anything for him. So we took a look at him. We'd pull a tooth out and he had a big abscess, but then it turned out that he had TB. Ooh. Yeah, in the jaw. And um, so we, because we had fundraised a bunch of money, um, we had sort of funds we hadn't spent yet. We took him under our wing as kind of our little poster boy. And we um, decided to send him to the big hospital. And we actually paid for his treatment for the next two years um, for this TB. And we would get little pictures every once in a while to see his face was looking better and he was feeling better. And um, So when we came back in 2015 with a larger team, we had 17 people, um, we got to see our little guy, Nishal, and um, check up on him and see how he was doing, which was a lot better. So it, it was just wonderful to see the difference you make in one kid's life. He was. Uh, he came from a family, very poor family, and like now he was um, better fed, taken care of. He had. He didn't have ratty clothes on. He wasn't dirty anymore. He, <laughs> he had some somebody that was taking really good care of him. 
So it was really inspiring to think that, you know, one person, you can make a difference. That's so wonderful. Do you have plans to go back in the future for another year? Well, we every, um, every project we have as a standalone, and then we reassess it, you know, a couple of months after. Now, we just got back uh, in November, and um, the dust is all settled. Now we have our little post parties and show pictures and everything. And then we, we get a couple of months, and then we say, okay, are we going to do this again? You know, what's the plan? Um, this time... We were sponsored by an organization called uh, Kindness in Action, and um, or KIA. They're out of Calgary. Um, it's kindness. Uh, heard their website, kindnessinaction.ca, and they do dental projects all over the world. They put us on their roster last year just so that we could get some dentists from their um, their pool of dentists that go to uh, their, on their projects. But uh, we don't know if they're going to, they might take it over as, um, as one of their projects, which would mean instead of going every two years, they would have teams going once a year, which would be fantastic. The, the area um, certainly has need. The, the people that we, we were serving mostly are Lepcha people who are a mountain people, uh, originally from the mountains around um, Kalimpong, which are Indian, Nepalese, Bhutan, uh, it's, we're in a, a very small area, a little blip that comes up um, in northeast er- uh, India, squeezed in between Nepal, Tibet, Bhutan, and um, Bangladesh. And in a high point in Kalimpong, and in, in the top of the Bon um, Tibetan Monastery, you can see you can have a 360-degree view of mountains of all these countries and Bangladesh plains. It's quite stunning. Um, so there's certainly need there. The Lepcha people are tribal, and they they uh, they kind of fall through the cracks, like many tribal people in many countries. Um, and they live, you know, scattered out in these little tiny villages all over the, the mountains there. And this, the uh, Center for Mountain Dynamics, where we had our clinic, a uh, little makeshift clinic, is where they would all come um, see us. And so there's certainly need. So we're hoping that um, Kindness in Action uh, will, will put us on their regular roster and continue to send teams there. Um, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Getting back to your question, I don't know whether we do it again. We certainly have a connection with Kalimpong. And this last time we went in November, there were uh, four nurses on the team and we decided to hold nurse workshops that would, uh, we thought, well, when the children are having their teeth done, the parents can learn basic first aid. And But what it turned out being was um, we had these young people, two from each surrounding village and one extra. So we had, had 21 young people um, who want to be the go-to person for their village um, for if any health issues arise. So they wanted to learn very basic first aid, um, how to build a stretcher out of bamboo found in the forest, uh, how to make a sling out of your, your scarf. It all had to be local and it had to cost nothing. Um, how to boil uh, bandages to make them sterile. You know, all these little basic things, how to splint a limb, so you can get somebody to the road. We had heard a story 
from these young people who said, uh, oh, recently there was a man who fell down the mountain stairs because all their, their villages stri- string down the mountain. Um, and he broke both legs and an arm. And we were, we were like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> what happened? How did you get him out? Well, we piggybacked him to the road. The road is two, usually two hours away walk, but this time it took nine hours. And we were like, oh, my God, how, you know, they said, well, we needed a stretcher. So I said, well, let's build one. <laughs> they thought, oh, we could. We could build a stretcher. So these are the kind of uh, things that we were responding to. They wanted to know about um, uh, snake bite. You know, how do we treat snake bite? How do we treat burns? Uh, electrocution in the monsoon. They, they um, have a lot of electrocutions in the monsoon. They have wet wires and... They throw their wire, their wire from their house over a main wire in order to extract electricity for free. <laughs> and so in the monsoon, this has disastrous consequences. So they want to know how to treat burns and different things. So we held this, these little workshops over a couple of days. And then we were invited back um, to uh, work in the, vi- in the villages and, and actually hold a couple of week curriculum of, um, they call it a paramedic course. Uh, we would just call it a village healthcare worker. And so we might go back. Um, I'm kind of, I felt like that was really pure nursing. <laughs> no bells and whistles, no frills, just, you know, dealing with the, the thing at hand. And so I'm quite excited about getting some nurses together to go, uh, to go stay in the the mountain villages and do this teaching next time. So who knows if it's going to be attached to a dental uh, component or we, we try to, we, we, we try to invent it on our own and figure out what to do, <laughs> figure out how to do it. So that's the plan. Oh, that's wonderful. That, that sounds so great to be able to do that and to, uh, to offer people this kind of knowledge sharing and, uh, and to give back in this way. It's amazing. It's a um, lot of fun. And, and, you know, we meet these incredible people. Well, for example, the, there was a, a Catholic nun named Sister Dina, and she works out in the villages. She has a little nunnery where I think, believe there's three of them, three or four of them, and they live in this house, and there are about 1,500 villagers around the area, and she, she delivers all the babies for the area. She's also a nurse midwife, and she works every day and lives very simply um and she teaches uh very very i called her a real nun you know (laughs) in that she didn't go by the church a lot of the church um dogma i suppose where we asked her to to speak about women's issues and so she talked about talked about uh, family planning and such which you know i don't think she's really supposed to um but she said, this is a needed thing. People need to know about this in this area. So uh, these, these people, we, we ran into so many of these kinds of people there that have not a lot, but just have their love and service of, of people around them. And it was so humbling because, you know, you go over there thinking that you're, actually, you're doing something wonderful, but then you get there and you meet all these amazing people <laughs> who are just like day in, day out doing it, you know. 
Yeah, it can certainly be a reality check sometimes when we think we're all altruistic and running off to be superheroes. And then we're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, they are daily superheroes. And and I feel that whenever I've done volunteer things, I felt that, yes, I've been giving to other people. But actually, what I, I've received so much more because I've learned so much from the people themselves and meeting these inspirations. In, in terms of, I guess, uh, traveling and, uh, and volunteering, too, you'd mentioned in your bio for the uh, anthology that you submitted to that you're a self-professed Indiaphile. Um, <laughs> could you speak a little bit to that? Was the first time that you visited India as part of the dental project you were a part of, or were you there before uh, for pleasure? <laughs> oh, yes. I've been there many times. This was uh, probably, I think it was number 13, 12 or 13. Um, I I've been fascinated with the country since I was a child. I don't, I don't have any explanation for that. I didn't know any people from India um, when I was small, but uh, for some reason, I just had this thing about India. And when I've been in India, sometimes I've been to places where I knew my way around and some strange experiences like that. And and I, you know, people in India would ask me, "Well, why do you come here?" and I'd say, I don't know. I just, I've always loved it. And uh, they will say, well, you spent many lifetimes in India. <laughs> to them, it's a no-brainer, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I just stopped questioning <laughs> after a while. But I, the first time I actually went there was um, 1986, uh, when a friend and I, we decided we were going to take our mountain bikes and cycle around the whole country. We didn't realize how big it was. And... Uh, <laughs> So we spent a couple months there and came back, um, cycling a little bit and um, traveling around and staying with families and whatnot. And I just, ever ever since that first time, I just kept thinking, I need to go back, I need to go that, back. And it was probably another eight years, nine years before I went back. But then when I did, I just kept going. And I felt, I, I was practically obsessed with it. I had a, quite the passion for the country, um, the people I just love. And so there was some point in my life where everything I did outside of my work at the hospital was India-related. I wrote articles. Um, I reviewed books, Indian author books, for an Indian newspaper. I studied classical Indian dance. I did Indian folk dance. I studied Hindi language. Um, I went to the local temple, wherever I was, uh, watched a lot of Bollywood, <laughs> and just was quite immersed in the culture. Um, and then at some point decided that, oh, if I wanted to go back every year, uh, I love to share it with people. So why not have a little business or tour company where I could take people every year? So on my vacation, that's what I did for a month. I took a group of eight to ten people went to India and uh, for two or three weeks and then I got a little trip and I got to share it and you know I got my fix so I did that for about 10 years and then that sort of slowed down and I decided I'll kind of retire from the tour guiding um, and then that's when I started getting an interest in the volunteering um, but since then now I also do I just can't stay away, so so I do a, I send a yoga retreat, so I sort of 
um, reinvented my little tour business. And instead of me taking people physically, I actually set up the retreat. It can be a yoga retreat, a meditation, qigong, whatever a person might want to take students to. And um, I kind of organize it all so it's almost like an all-inclusive. So then they go to a place, retreat place, and in Kerala, or right now it's Kerala to start with, and they have their retreat there. Um, so it, it, it's great because I keep, I'm able to keep my connections with the people in India who I love and become my friends over, you know, 15 years of, of traveling there. And, um, and then it's a win-win, you know, the people there get, get uh, the business and, and I get to connect with them and keep sort of my foot in the door in a way. And <laughs> so that's how I, I continue. <laughs> that's a great side hustle as, you know, recognizing, you know, the knowledge that you have as somebody who's visited there so much and then being able to connect people from both areas, both Canada and India, Canada, probably the U.S. too, and India. So that's uh, amazing. And to be able to take business there too, that's... Yeah, it's win-win. And I feel like I have so much to share about India that it seemed like a waste to just not do anything and just sort of let it die out somehow. It's <laughs> so doing the, the um, volunteering is a really a great way for me too, because... Um, uh, Kalimpong was an area I'd never visited before. So, and it's very interesting because it's, to me, it's almost an un-India place. It's uh, very different. It's very um, Tibetan Buddhist. Um, the people look different. They almost look Burmese. They have a, a different way of being. Um, it, we don't have the people factor like in a lot of other places that are touristed, highly touristed, because very few tourists go there. They go there as a... Um, a stopover to go up um, trekking in the Himalayas and Gangtok and Sikkim and that. Uh, so it's it's not um, it's way off. It's quite off the beaten path. Um, but yeah, it was fun for me to uh, to visit a completely different um, area of India. So it was quite an opportunity. Well, I definitely loved the uh, piece that you'd submitted for the anthology, which spoke to uh, a period of time during your travels. And I think that uh, if you'd ever be interested in writing about your experiences in India or starting a blog or anything like that, it would certainly be well appreciated because you definitely had a great way of expressing what it was like to, uh, you know, vividly experience uh, your time there. Oh, thank you very much. It, you know, that was the first story. It was the first one that sort of sprung to mind for me. And um, I, there's a lot more stories in my head that need to come out. But uh, the funny thing about that that story, too, was, you know, at first I thought, well, it's not very Buddhist. It's <laughs> but actually, um, to me, it was completely Buddhist in a way because it was uh, about connecting with people on a on a, a higher level beyond, you know, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or, or Canadian. or It was all about just connecting as people and um, letting each other be who we were. Um, so on that level, I thought it was a sort of a sneaky Buddhist story. Oh, definitely. Buddhists like to sneak around in different cloaks and... <laughs> 
Well, that, I guess, rounds things out uh, in terms of we've taken it full circle from talking about you being in snowy Canada to uh, sunny and warm India. And now back, uh, we return back to this body and this emanation here in cold, snowy Canada. <laughs> so I just want to thank you very much for your time, Julie, and uh, and uh, for participating in the book and, and for sharing some of your stories with me here on this very first podcast. It's been such a great pleasure to hear you speak about uh, compassion and service and, and being helpful and uh, all of the great things that I think anybody, regardless of whatever tradition they follow, uh, definitely needs to uh, need to walk. Thank you very much, Tanya, for having me. It's been a great honor to, to be a part of the book. Excellent. Well, I'm giving you a deep bow right now, and uh, <laughs> we'll sign off together here for now. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Dharmage. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, if you'd like to be interviewed, if you have any music you'd like to have featured on the show, don't hesitate to drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at tanyamcg at gmail.com. Thanks so much and stay tuned.